Good morning. It's good to have everyone here as we uh, continue our Sunday morning together. Um, excited about this study as we are finishing up this particular section that we've been looking at, Principles Behind the Law. Um, the past three sessions, we have looked at uh, sacrifices and feast days and cleanliness, the purity laws. What we're going to be looking at today are what uh, I'm labeling as the moral laws. Um, there's a couple of different perspectives on them, so just know that's going to be our focus. But what we've been thinking about is that uh, the Old Testament law is there for a reason in our lives. And the things that God gave the people, they made sense. It was practical. It was something that they could relate to, but it's also also something that they could take into the land in which they were going, the promised land, and they were going to stand out differently than everyone else. And all these things are going to come out a little bit more as we study this particular part today. And then we'll shift gears uh, into next week as we go into the New Testament and see how all these laws particularly apply in places like uh, the Gospels and the Book of Acts. We'll be seeing that uh, specifically. But as I said, we're going to be thinking about the moral laws. And I love talking about this topic. It's something that's uh, very important to me and also something of just great interest. Uh, see, I guess it was two summers ago uh, in here I taught a class on ethics. And a couple of things that we'll be referencing today are part of that idea. And it, of course, relates to our main principles that we've been taking from the law so far, that the law is an extension of God's nature. If you can understand who God is, then you're going to understand why he's asking what he does. But also that if you love God, you're going to be willing to follow him in whatever he says. Now, there are some things that we're going to be seeing concerning the law, concerning morals, that even people outside of Christianity or outside of theism, outside of the God that we know from the scriptures, from the universe, the one true God, there are some people, or there are, all people should know certain laws that are a basic fabric of the universe and who we are as created individuals. And the things that we see through the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, everything together is in continuation of that, but also giving a little more breath to what those things are. And so all that will make a little bit more sense as we carry on. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Uh, we're going to be looking at a few passages here and uh, having some discussion off of them. As we're looking at these moral laws, uh, we considered the feasts uh, and all the rules and commandments that God gave about what is a feast, where did that come from, uh, what what are they celebrating? What are they thinking about together? Uh, the laws about the sacrifices. God says, okay, if you're going to celebrate a uh, certain type of feast, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to prepare yourself, the possessions that you have. These are things that you're offering back to God to make sure that you stay within the correct parameters of whatever that may be. And then we talked about clean and unclean. God has these rules about dietary laws, but also practical laws about how to stay away from things that make you ceremoniously unclean and um, also things that could be of a health hazard to you. What we're looking at today, these laws concerning morals, it's also civil laws is another aspect of it, is how do we interact with each other? A lot of the things that God does from the beginning of time and continues to do till now is just keeping us from fighting each other and killing one another. We have a basic commandment of do not kill, uh, do not murder. We understand do not murder. But he also has all these other commandments from the beginning of time to keep us from just tearing the, the whole world apart. And we've seen multiple times actually through the scriptures where people have decided they want to do whatever they want to do and it has literally torn the world apart. And so God in some way is just trying to keep the balance and remind us of what we're supposed to be about. And all these laws and all these commandments are to go before us so we know how to act. 
And all of this is playing into this moral idea that the laws that God is giving us, it's for a reason. Part of it is because he can ask us because he's the creator of heaven and earth. On the other side, it's so that we can see how to work with one another. And so I want to look at a few passages in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Uh, my heading in ESV says various laws. You know, we focused on Leviticus, and, uh, and that's where our first three sessions really of this part have come from, looking at the book of Leviticus and all the laws about how you present to God. And we're back to Deuteronomy, the condensed version, the second uh, retelling of the original commandments. And the things that we're going to be seeing here, you can really go backwards and forwards and see more things similar to it. But I thought it'd be fun just to look through these commandments and maybe get some of your perspective on it. So let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his, fallen, uh, or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. All right, so what do you notice in this verse? All right, you can take it a couple of different ways. You can think about it in context to the Jews, why a law would be in place like this. But then you can also just draw some practical principles from it, maybe some things that we can learn today. What do you notice from this passage? What sticks out to you? Okay, so Daniel's looking at the principle that uh, it's talking about an ox or a donkey, you know, something like that. But he also talks about um, any kind of possession, whether it is a garment or any lost thing. But the principle would be, you know, us today, if you find something that you would want to make sure that gets returned back, you try and find as much evidence as you can to make sure it gets right into the hands of the owner. All right, very good. What else do you notice? Okay, so... As we keep talking about these basic principles, and that's the whole idea of what we're looking at here, a basic principle that we understand, but also other people get as well, is the golden rule. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. That if I had something lost, I would want it to be found and returned back to me. Um, so very good. Yeah, you see the golden rule here. What else? Do what? Your brother's soul? Okay, so you think about your brother, and that's something that sticks out to me in this passage. He talks about your brother, and it's not just kinsman as in, you know, the, my actual sibling. It's a little bit bigger than that. It's the picture of your brothers that make up, you know, the Jews. And you may not who, know who they are. He's like, if you know that this donkey belongs to so-and-so, then you're going to make sure that returns back to them. But also, if you don't know who it is, you know that it belongs to someone because it's not yours. You are considering your brother, you're considering other people, and you're seeing them in light of what God has really created, that he's made us people, He has made us equal, and we want to take care of each other and aware of each other's uh, soul and who we are created from God. Very good. What else?
Okay, so uh, a couple of things that John uh, highlights. One, you could think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. That'd probably be a good little note to put right next to this. But a, a word that sticks out as well as something I noticed, the word ignore. Don't ignore this. We can ignore things. We can see stuff and we can think, well, that's not my job. I'm not going to worry about it. That's too much work. Uh, we can ignore things. He's like, no, you pay attention. If you see something that needs to be done, you act on it. That should be a general principle about anything, whether you're talking about a work ethic or just consideration of each other. But something like this, you know that it's there. Maybe even uh, an ox that's in the ditch, you notice and you're like, no, I'm not doing that. The Good Samaritan is a great example of that when you have a priest and a Levite that sees a man in the laying on the ground and they're just going to, they're going to take a wide berth and they're going to go away from him and not help. But you've got the Samaritan that actually stops and helps. Um, and, you know, even at his own expense, he's willing to do something to provide. Um, so, yeah, the word ignore is a great value here. Yeah. Okay. So the Ten Commandments, remember, if you're going to have that little uh, code that you were going to write next to different verses that you'll see throughout the Bible, you'd want to write the one about do not steal here. And he never uses the word still in the passage. But you know what it is, that this would t be taking something that is not your own, something that you have not worked for, something that you uh, did not gather, that it doesn't belong to you. Um, and so, yeah, you have a commandment, do not steal, but then uh, this would be a good application of taking that a little bit further and understanding what is required of you. So yeah, there's a lot of great principles just in this uh, passage about how to take care of each other. And Jesus even uses this himself to talk about uh, the Sabbath. He said, you know, if you see somebody or you have an ox that's in the ditch, aren't you going to do something to take care of it? Part of it is uh, derived from a passage like this. And so I think we can get a lot of uh, understanding from this and how to take care of each other. Um, but also, you know, what stuck out to me was verse 3, whether it's a garment or any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. It's, you know, don't just narrow it down to, okay, only God said if it's a donkey or an ox or a garment or whatever, you know, like, I'm only going to do it for these things. If it's anything outside of that. It never says money. If I find some money, it's all mine. It's fair game. You know, how far are we going to take this principle and understand what God is asking us? Okay, very good. All right, let's look at the next one. Chapter 22, verse 5. And we're just going to go all the way down through verse 12. Just know that's how we're working through this. So, verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. All right, so we've seen this in, um, in, we've seen it in the news. We've seen it in conversations and dialogues with people. Uh, looking at a passage like this and, and you know, talking about uh, homosexuality or transgender, things along those lines. So we have a lot of cultural context today. But as I said, I'm throwing it back on you. Think about this passage in context to the Israelites. What is he indicating here? But also, what is some application that we may take from it? What do you notice in this passage? Okay, so the number 
All right, so the principle behind this, God has uh, distinct characteristics of gender, but also distinct characteristics of roles is uh, what Daniel is bringing out as well. The expectation of a man, the expectation of a woman, and then taking that into the family unit and society, all that together. Okay, what else do you notice? Abomination. That's a strong word to find here. And you're going to find it, you know, in the old law, you'll find things that are an abomination to the Lord. We find stories that illustrate this left and right. But when something is particularly defined as an abomination or an act or something in and of itself, you want to steer clear of it. There's some kind of principle, there's some kind of understanding that makes sense. You know, we just went from talking about an ox and how to handle your brother's lost possessions to talking about clothing. What exactly is going on here? As we look at these various or miscellaneous laws, you know, it's not like trying to make a connection one after the other. Uh, It's kind of the, they took one step, God will take another. And he's putting all these things out there for them to be aware of. The land in which they're going is their abominations that were found there. Read the book of Joshua and Judges, and you find abominable practices. And what was the goal of God giving them these rules is to make them stand out. And I think in some way, a law like this is helping them understand what other people and other practices may be doing that they would steer away from it as well. Something else, maybe, um, I think about the where we were last week, laws about clean and unclean. You can read through the book of Leviticus and you can find things that make a man unclean, um, part of bodily discharges and things along those lines. And the same thing with women. There are things that make them unclean. And in some way, there's a, a practical aspect based on the ceremony, uh, the laws concerning the ceremonies that are supposed to go through with purity is that you're trying to keep yourself unclean. You're trying to keep yourself from all uncleanliness. And so I think there's something practical here as well that's distinct about the land in which they are going. And some of these laws, that's another key phrase that I want you to be aware of as we look at them. It talks about that you may live long in the land in which you are going to possess, that the Lord is giving you to possess. There's something about when you go into that land, things are going to look different. Things are going to be strange, and you need to stand out distinct from them. And I think there's a lot of things concerning this, um, just practical, but also related to other laws as well. Any other observations about this one? Yeah. Okay, so it's just once again reinforcing what God has created is that, you know, and, and we, we see all these conversations about there's a difference between sex and gender and people trying to make distinctions between those. But what we understand about how God has made us, there's clear, there are clear things back in Genesis chapter one, and this is just another application of that. And so as we look at these principles concerning the law, there's an extension back to what God created that then carries over. And this is one of those times where he's trying to shore things up, things that you should realize from the very beginning. He's having to teach you in practical ways here or having to put a law and a commandment on top of it so that you can understand what he says here. And if you can get it here, you're going to be able to live it out there as well. And so it's all in connection to who God is and what he asks. All right, here's another passage. We'll keep going through these. Verses 6 and 7. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself. 
that it may go well with you and that you may live long. All right, so I probably had a good, you know, the, the first few passages, I understand what to do with that. The next one, all right, I can see some principles here. Talking about a bird. What, what do you notice here? Why would God be concerned about a bird and its eggs? Okay, so George is pointing out that it shows God's concern about just creation in general. We think that, you know, he's only concerned about us, but he takes care of the birds of the air. Does that sound like uh, Matthew chapter 6, something along the, the Sermon on the Mount? He takes care of everything, um, and it should be a reminder how he takes care of us, and there might be something there. Uh, good observation. What else? Okay, so wondering if there might be some other principles here. Um, maybe if you were to use it as an illustration or could a parable come from this, it might be able to have some other teaching. Um, maybe something like that. But, you know, trying to keep it in line to its context here, why would God be asking the Jews to be aware of something? It had to be some, you know, practical or is there something about uh, another law concerning cleanliness or something along those lines? Um, maybe there's something here. What else? Yeah, so just practically, if you kill the mother, <laughs> how's she going to produce more? How's she even going to take care of the, the other young that may come along? I think he was just trying to keep them, you know, um, you know, population control, <laughs> you know, making sure that they are actually going to have things to eat. I, the fact that God had to give them laws about things like this, that's what is intriguing, is that I think it is just a very practical law. If you take the mother along with its young, then... If you keep doing this with all of them, what's eventually going to happen to the population of those animals? Like, if you want to keep having and them producing, this is what you need to do. Um, you could very easily eradicate them, and then you wouldn't have any food sources. He's trying to teach them, I think, how to take care of what's given to you and that's in your control as well. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, what's one of the responsibilities of us as humans to creation? take care of what God's created, take care of the animals, take care of the things around us. And we see um, our environmentalist friends and, and beyond from there looking at that, but they're missing a, a very basic principle that we're acknowledging here about God has made us stewards of what he has created and he wants us to take care of it. And he had to give them a basic principle about, well, take care of the birds. I'm going to take care of you, but as I'm taking care of you, you take care of other things. And there's just a, a good balance of all things together. I think definitely something to take from here. Thank you. 
So is he talking about, in the, the last part of the passage, what you're bringing out is uh, that it may go well for you, that you may live long. Is he talking about nourishment? Um, I think in some ways, yeah, he's talking about nourishment. But that phrase, that it may go well for you, that you may live long, if you'll go look for that in the book of Deuteronomy, I think it's more in conjunction, and there's a, a few bigger sections that deal with that. Um, if you disobey God in any of his commandments from what we're seeing here, What's one of the, you know, remember, go back to our blessings and cursings, all right? So if you disobey God, what do some of those curses look like when you go into the land? The land will not do what for you? Yield its fruit. Um, you'll have thorns and you'll have thistles. I think in some way, he, as you know, yes, he's talking about nourishment as well. But if you look for that particular phrase and then relate it to the book of Deuteronomy and these commandments, but really the blessings and the cursings, if you do what God tells you to do, the land will produce for you. The, the things will uh, be fruitful and will multiply. I think it's an extension. If you start going away from God, the land's eventually going to shrivel up as well. So there, I, I think there's a lot of different ways to see that. Um, but you, you highlight a very good point. Thank you. So, you know, looking at something like this, I think he's being very practical, but helping along these lines as well. But let's keep going. Right, let's look at a few more. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that's a, a rail around it, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. All right, digest it. What do you find? <laughs> Build a fence around your swimming pool so that somebody doesn't come along and fall into it and drown, that the blood may be upon your house. An application. All right, what else? You're responsible for people that come in your home and you don't want anything to happen to them. Yeah, um, our, even our laws today talk about if somebody gets hurt on our property that we're liable. Uh, we see all, the, all those things and we, we pay for all the insurance and things along those lines to talk about, uh, you know, how do you deal with a situation like this? Yeah, it's just, I, it's just once again for me a very practical thing is that you take care of each other. And it was probably a reoccurring potential or maybe something that happened that God's like, look, y'all need to be aware of this, that um, you got to take care of people that are around you and you structure your entire home and your lifestyle to be aware of others. Think about that for a second. Everything that you do, everything that's within our power to, to act upon, that we should be aware of other people. The number one commandment, you love God. What's number two? You love your neighbor as yourselves. Love is an extension of who God is and what he's expecting of us, and we want to take care of each other. And so it's just a, another practical aspect. Uh, let's go through a couple more, and then we'll uh, continue on. I just thought it'd be interesting as we keep looking at this section. Um, all right, 22 verse 9. Oh, they repeated. Look at that. Or was I behind? Okay, what's well, going to keep going without us? One more time. If it decides to leave us, we're just going to keep going. All right, so let's look at these others. Uh, verse 9. Uh, you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole, um, and I don't think it's up there right now, so we'll just bear with it. So let the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard, you, um, and then he goes on to verse 10. So, all right, verse 9. 
what do you notice in that passage? What is he trying to instruct them? Sowing two different kinds of seed in your vineyard. So uh, the, the parable of the tares, the parable of the weeds that's mentioned in Matthew chapter 13, where, you know, having two different things growing together, that one can overrun the other one, and, but there will be a time where you need to harvest. And so maybe something there that it might, over, might overthrow it. You might have some competition between them. Yes, sir. All right, so when you are just making your garden, there are certain things that grow together, right? There are certain things that um, if you grow a jalapeno next to something, Wayne, um, it might give a little extra spice to the banana pepper that's next to it. You're putting things together. It, it, it could um, keep the purity of what you want to accomplish, but it could also mix with it. And maybe there's something here about what God expects when you're going to give him the first fruit and you've got multiple things growing together, maybe just an awareness how to take care, but also just the practical, taking care of your garden, how that may look. So could this be a, a parable or maybe an illustration about not mixing with the land that they're about to go into, these uh, people that are going to be doing wrong that you would want to stand out different? Um, if we do it with our crops, what do we think we should do with when it comes to things concerning sin? I think there's a, a lot of great things there. A couple more, and then we'll uh, go on from here. Uh, just real quick to bring them out, just because we're here. Verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. This balance between them, there's going to be this competition that uh, an ox and a donkey are going to pull differently. Now, if you have an unlearned donkey and maybe one that has been doing it for a while, and you put them together, the same yoke, they're going to balance each other out. When you think about some application, maybe Matthew chapter 11, about taking on the yoke that Jesus gives us that He'll bring us into subjection with him. I think there's something there. But also we submit ourselves to his guidance. But I don't know, a lot of good things here. Verse 11, you should not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Their clothing lasted for 40 years in the wilderness. And as they're going to this land, if you start mixing fabrics, people look, you know, why would God ask them to do this? You got two different types of fabric together and they've stitched them together and it gets wet and it starts drying. What's eventually going to happen? It's going to start separating. Uh, there's a parable uh, from Jesus that talks about um, new clothing and putting an old patch or vice versa on there, that things are going to separate. Maybe there's something practical as they're taking care of their possessions. So as I look at these various laws, and sorry to rush through on those just because I don't want to continue on as well. When you read through the book of Deuteronomy, as we're untying the law and we look at all these interesting things about why would God say this, we'd slow down and not just get caught up in, well, that seems absurd that God would do something like this. There's some real good reasons why. And it, um, as we are trying to read the scriptures, we want to understand why. We want to know what's happening in the land, what's happening in those cultures during that time. Uh, what were people doing that God's like, look, y'all need to straighten up a little bit more. Do you understand what you're doing? You're not taking care of each other. All of these things are very important as we study this law, but also just this basic principles of morality. 
let's condense down some things that you've noticed just in this passage. And I said you can read backwards, you can read forward from uh, Deuteronomy 22, and you will see all of these laws concerning morality, but also civil, just how do you work together. Here's some things that you'll notice. There's a particular type of phrasing that they all kind of follow uh, in line with this if-then. Look at how many times you find the word if. So another thing as you're reading through the scriptures, circle the word if. When he gives a commandment, look at if. If you do this and this and this, this, then this. If you will keep yourselves without, you know, uh, without intermingling with other peoples that are following after idols, then God will take care of you. If you take care of your crops, you take care of your possessions, then this will happen. Look at how many commandments, look at how many laws follow that. They're also just basic morals that are an extension from who God is. Remember, we go back to that first major theme that we've seen throughout this. The law is an extension of God's nature. When we look at the moral laws concerning the Old Testament, they're an extension of who God is. Because He is loving, He is just, He is merciful, they're going to match who He is and what He asks. But also, a lot of these laws are practical, but also they're ceremonial, that if you are taking care of your possessions and you're looking at the first of your crop and you're looking at how to stay pure away from things that may make you unclean, there's a lot of laws that are just for you to help you understand that. We have our civil laws that is this balance between um, how you know if people start uh, causing troubles and dissensions and rivalries with each other. God comes in and he says, I've got a solution for that. Now when we get to the New Testament, we don't have this itemized list of how to make our house and prepare it. But we do still have laws about, you know, our civil uh, interactions with each other. You love God first and you love your neighbors yourself. If you keep those things in mind, it's going to keep us from falling apart in a world that is full of darkness, but also even in the church. There are ways that we handle these kind of things. There are civil laws all around us. But also there's this idea of a distinct people. You will stand out differently from the world if you will follow this. Not just into the land, the promised land in which they're going, but our idea of the church and what God has established, we stand out very differently from the rest of the world. The way that we talk, the way that we dress, the way that we interact with other people, we are distinct and it's a basic principle that you find in these laws that is carried over to us. But then there's also something else that comes from this, God's ultimate rule. He can make the decision to give us certain laws and commandments. Now, they're not going to contradict with who he is, but he also has the freedom because he is the sovereign creator of all things that he can tell us how to handle the birds because he made them as well as how he made us. He has that right. He has that privilege. Us, on the other hand, we are interacting in a different way. So these are basic principles of morality that you find not just in the Old Testament itself, but overall uh, things that you will notice. Now, this is where I, I, I want to step to the side a little bit from the law, and we're going to bring it back together. When we talk about the existence of God, and we're discussing with other people that are in the world about morality, we have some of our friends of the world that are caught up in things. They're looking at these passages, and they're trying to tell us that you know, why would you want to follow a God that says, you know, completely eradicate an entire group of people in the promised land? Why would you want to follow a God that would, you know, tell you to commit genocide? Why would you follow a God that says to sacrifice your son when he has all these other commandments about going into the land and not sacrificing your children because it's an abominable practice? So is your God contradicting himself? People look at these laws and they just want to pick and choose and they don't understand the whole picture. But we have a lot of tools in our belt 
to show the one true God. And if we could step back and just have a generic conversation with people about morality in general. And I think this is so interesting. When people start launching these assaults against God and, and they're trying to indict him against the, you know, with all of this information, this is how you want to step back and you just want to ask a simple question. If that be the case, all right, let's say that, that you know, and we're just going to go a very rough picture and bear with me and I'll say this. Let's say that God wants to just, you know, eradicate an entire people group as he feels, uh, that's fine. Let's just say that our God does that. And we're talking to people in the world and, and they say, well, that's unfair, that's unjust, or that's not right. Here's our question we bring back to them. You ready? Who decided that's unjust? Who decided that's unfair? Who decided that that was bad? If there is no standard for morality, if there are no objective morals in the world, how can you tell me that this God is wrong? Now, of course, you know, we come in inside conversation. We know how to picture this God and how to deal with him. We just did it. But they look at it and you say, okay, well, why do you think that he's unjust? Where's your standard of justice? Where does that come from? You see, objective morality exists, and this is the basic argument in the way it lays out. If objective morality exists, that there are some things in the universe, there are some things in the world that are just wrong. Why do people say that it's wrong to murder? Why do people say that it's wrong to steal? Where does that come from? And why do these things exist? And here's the difference between objective and subjective. Objective and subjective. If I'm describing something, let's say I'm going to describe this pew. This is an object, okay? And I can tell you all of its characteristics, and I can tell you that it is made of this type of foam, and it has this type of uh, cloth on top of it, and stapled in a particular way, and this is the type of wood that it's made from. I can give you objective characteristics about it. Subjectively, I can say, that looks really good to take a nap on. Subjectively, I can say, that is my favorite type of pew I've ever seen in my entire life. Me, as the subject, looking at the object, I can have any preference I want about it. But as for the actual object itself, it has certain characteristics about it. Okay, so there's our difference between objective and subjective. Do certain acts or certain things in the universe, are they objectively good or objectively right or objectively wrong or objectively bad? Murder. Who decided that murder was right and wrong? Is it because it makes me feel gross and I just don't like it? And so I think we just need to ban it. And we don't need to have any murder. We don't need to have any killing at all. And we just need to stay away from it, even capital punishment and things along those lines. Is it because I, as the, the subject, just don't like it that we need to avoid it? Or is there something wrong in and of itself? Now, inside conversation with us as Christians, right? Uh, we look at the scriptures and we can go back to the very beginning that we were all created in the image of God. And that we do not shed innocent blood. We do not... Um, take other people's lives. That's not something that's within our hands unless God has given us further clarification from that. But as we're talking to people, this basic argument, if objective morality exists, then God exists. Do things in the universe really line up as good and bad, and who gets to decide what that is? All these things that we're going to be discussing, I think that you will find basic principles of them all throughout the Scriptures. But if you want to take that discussion a little bit further to show why objective morals exist, here are some things just as you're discussing with our friends, okay? Some things to be aware of to show that objective morals actually exist. Number one, we discuss morals. Um, have you ever seen a conversation on Facebook or uh, two competing parties that are discussing some moral issue like abortion? Do they talk about it with the same amount of vigor and passion that they talk about their favorite flavor of ice cream? If people are trying to decide if abortion is right or wrong, is that, are they just as passionate and just as 
uh, overcome with evidence as they are about why strawberry ice cream is better than v vanilla. No. When people talk about moral things, they get upset because they know that there is a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. It's not the same as the way you talk about your favorite flavor of ice cream. Because my favorite flavor of ice cream is subjective. It's what I like. It's not, and I'm not going to be able to enforce that on somebody else. But if things are objective, you look at how we discuss, how things are being discussed left and right around us. And when it comes to moral things, I think it shows the objectiveness of morality. Here's another thing. We have moral reformers. You know, it, it's interesting in our time, in our place, in our situation, when you think about all the things that happened in Montgomery, Alabama throughout our history, we have moral reformers that have stepped up. You think about Martin Luther King, what he accomplished. And the appeal of something like a moral reformer that comes in and looks at a society and says they're doing something wrong, they have to be coming from a place of they're doing something wrong and we need to change that. Who decided that what was happening when it came to race problems, when it came to really just human dignity, where does that standard of human dignity come from? Is it something that we all decided that we just need to, to have and relate to each other that way, or is there something objective about it? The fact that we have more reformers that have stood up and said, that's wrong, you can't do that. That's wrong for the Nazis to, uh, to have genocide to these other people groups, that's wrong. Who decided what that is? Unless there's something objective about it. A couple of other things. We believe in moral mistakes. Now, when you call something a mistake, you know, it's just, ah, sorry, you slipped up. Look back over the 20th century. All of the moral atrocities that happened to people. You think about um, the civil rights movement. You think about... Um, all the things that happened in, uh, with the Nazis. You think about all these other uh, nations and things that they were struggling with. If we can't call certain things right or certain things wrong, who are we to look at those people groups and those, those nations and say, you shouldn't be doing things like that? If we really believe in right and wrong, we act on it. It's more than just a mistake. We know it as sin. But to even call it something like that, we have to have a standard for it. We act as victims of injustice. You know, if, if somebody comes in and they said there are no moral, there are no objective morals, you get to decide what's right, you get to decide what's right, I get to decide what's right, we're all just going to work together. That's all well and good until you take something from me. Then that's unfair. Who are you to steal from me? I know that, you know, those are your possessions, you need to take care of your family, you got to do what's best for you, you just do you, until it encroaches on me. Then we have a problem. When we act as people who have received some kind of unjust act toward us, we are appealing to something that is beyond us. There's more to this world about objective morals than what people even want to uh, give it credit to. We see cultural consensus. The fact that murder is wrong across the board tells us something about objective morality. And then the last one, we live in a moral world. The fact that we can even talk about morals in the way that we do says something about the way that the, this world has been created. And there's the key. All of these things are pointing to God as the creator. So considering these things, and there's a lot to rehash with them, and I wish I could spend more time, and really they merit their own class, which is why I taught a whole class on ethics a couple of summers ago. Enjoy that if you want to pull up the live stream. But let's continue on a little bit more in context for our principles concerning the old law. How does God determine morality? Essentially what we're looking at here, for him to make some of these commandments about a bird, or our neighbor's ox, or clothing, 
Who is God to make this kind of decision? That's really what we want to get down to. Here's our two main themes. Just tweak just a little bit, a different wording. God's morality. First off, goodness is an extension of God's nature. We've been nailing that home in many different ways. That if God is good, then he's going to ask us to do things that are good. And this relates to this. God is not only good, he is the good. He is good in and of himself. The same way that he is love, he is just, he is light. All of these things. It's not just he sees good and that's, oh, that's all nice. And I think I'll promote that. It is who he is. God would never ask us to do something that goes against his nature. And if I hold that view in my mind, and I read the scriptures with that in mind, it tells me something that the world does not see yet, but that they can. As we've talked about, if the objective morals exist, then God exists. It just takes us showing them who God is and why he would ask us to do these things. God will never command something against his nature. I can be very confident of that. So when I read the scriptures and I look and I think, well, that seems to go against God's nature. Is he all punishment and vengeance, and, or is he all love and mercy? Uh, how can he say something over here and something over here must contradict so that the Bible's wrong? It must be a different God. Going from this basic understanding, we've got to come back to it. And this is an in-house conversation, I know. It's not an apologetic lecture. But God will never command something against his nature. I've got to know that. So when I find something that I struggle with, as we've kind of done in just a few passages in Deuteronomy chapter 22, I've got to have some kind of staple or some kind of foundation to come back to. I think it all comes from who God is and what we understand about good and right and wrong. And here's a value for us concerning these laws, the civil laws and the moral laws and how people interacted. God has created humans according to his moral standard. He made us with the capacity to do good and to understand why we should do good. That's why when we see some act being done that we want to even put ourselves at risk. If you see a child drowning in a, a rushing river, are you just going to stand there and say, well, that's unfortunate. No, what would you do? You're going to jump in at great expense to yourself or find some kind of solution in order to help. If objectives are just, you know, uh, if morals are just subjective, then I'm going to do whatever is best for me to preserve my life. And although somebody may be losing their life over here, I'm not going to interact at all. Do you see how that may go to a grand scale? Do you see how that relates to the Jews having this inside track to who God is and wanting to take that into the world? Because what was one of their objectives? Be a light to the nations. It wasn't just to completely destroy them without any forgiveness because we have people like Rahab that was a prostitute that was in the middle of Jericho, in the middle of the, the, the land that had been tainted by abominable practices. Yet we find her converting over to the one true God because all the, all the dots connected. All these things made sense. She said, I want to serve this God because I know he's true. That's the kind of conversations we can have with people in this world. And when we talk about the objective standard that we find in these laws like Deuteronomy 22 and then backwards and forwards, they all make sense because of how God has created us to recognize that and to live by it. So key terms of God's morality. This would be one of those things that you would want to mark down as you study. The laws that you find, how are they a reflection of justice? How are they a reflection of God or of fairness? How are they a reflection of just goodness? And I'm giving all the positive attributes, but just on the other side, there are negative ones as well. What is God saying? Tie everything back together. Um, two major keys to take from this. Deuteronomy chapter 4. 
Deuteronomy 4, 12 through 14. Talking about the Ten Commandments, it says, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. He heard the sounds of the words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on the two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you the statutes and the rules that you may do them in the land that you were going over to possess. They received these Ten Commandments. Those are the ones they heard. All these other commandments Moses had received, and he taught the people. And I'll put this passage up there just so you can compare it. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22, and then Deuteronomy 5, 23 through 27. This is the one takeaway. God revealed certain things to the Ten Commandments to the people that they actually heard God say, and they said, we don't want to hear God's voice anymore unless he strike us down. Moses, you go talk to God and you tell us about it. There are some laws, some morals that God has put within our hearts that we can recognize that he has spoken to us, he's revealed to us, there are other things that he has continued to reveal to us through his word that we may know more about him. Therefore, let's read the scriptures to know God better. So thank you very much. Sorry to rush through that last part.